And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Kelly Link on the Coot Street Podcast! Excellent. Now, now that's, that's an introduction. And, and Kelly, thank you for sitting through that. Oh, thank, um, you for, thank you for letting me sit through that. <laughs> okay, well, congratulations, uh, very, ma- very many congratulations on Get In Trouble, and, and, uh, and some belated congratulations on Monstrous, Monstrous Affections, which was certainly one of the anthologies of the year. Thank you. Thank you very much. Here's a question I have, because Get In Trouble has had more um, reviews in more places than, than most books associated with our field. I saw one, I think, this week in Entertainment Weekly. Uh, which, and I, I have no idea what the demographic of Entertainment Weekly is, but I, I just see a lot of people picking up the book and getting puzzled. Do you feel like you're in a tug-of-war? Do you feel like you're being, like, picked for three different volleyball teams at the same time? Because you used to kind of belong to our tribe. I, um, that might be clearer from your point of view than mine. Um, no, I don't. Uh, you know, I think that... Um, you know the way that the the Random House uh, has packaged the book, and mm-hmm. the ways in which they are promoting it are, um, you know, it, maybe it, it doesn't look like a typical science fiction or fantasy book, but um, I don't think that they have any issue with it being promoted as such. I think they're trying to find the, they're definitely trying to broaden my audience, but I think that's what oh, yeah. any house tries to do. But I think they're actually pretty comfortable with with me you know saying that I, I write science fiction or fantasy or genre um but again you know i mean you were you mentioned monstrous affections and that was that was young adult so i don't and i i will say that that does seem to be the one kind of distinction that that um you know when they were when we were beginning to, to talk about this collection was um you know the pretty monsters. Um, the you know this this was um, get in trouble was marketed as my first collection for adults in ten years. Right. Which you know, uh, why? Well, I no, think it, it makes I, it, sound, it sound like more of an event. Uh, yeah, but uh, it also sort of dismisses pretty monsters as being an adult collection, and and I would say the same thing about monstrous affections. I think one of the things that happens among fantasy and science fiction readers is that. We tend not to make those distinctions. So why a collection of good stories? I mean, back until you mentioned it was a young adult collection, I had completely forgotten what Monsters Affection was. Well, it, that I mean, the the odd thing about um, Pretty Monsters was that it was absolutely marketed and published as a young adult collection. I think mm-hmm. people who were just looking for a collection of my work didn't necessarily see it that way. But that is very much how it was marketed. And I think the you know distinction between that collection and this is get in trouble is being marketed very much as an adult collection, which is appropriate since there are a bunch of stories about middle-aged people in there. So, oh, yeah. But I, you know, I, I, I do think that these distinctions are collapsing, uh, at least for certain writers. I'm not sure that every science fiction or fantasy writer that you talk to would feel that way, especially if they feel that they're stuck on one side of the, the divide. But, um, you know, there there doesn't seem to be quite the kind of critical distinction um, between between genre and whatever you want to call it, non-genre that there used to be. But don't you think it's true that 
uh, you know, at least several of the stories, if not more than that, that are in Get in Trouble could just as easily have been in the, the follow-up to whatever would have been Pretty Monsters had that happened that way? Well, absolutely, since, um, you know, maybe a, uh, maybe a third or a quarter of them were originally written sure. for young adult yeah. anthologies. Yeah, The New Boyfriend could easily have been in Pretty Monsters. Um, and, and well, it was in, it was in Monsters Affections, which was a collection for young yeah. adults. Right, exactly. Do you think? Um, but you know, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say this is the odd thing about young adult is young adult is actually a weird kind of sub branch in some ways of adult fiction. I mean, that's why there's so much crossover between the audience. Why you have so many adults reading young adult anyway is because young adult is actually adult. It's just young adult. Well, I was gonna say, do you think too much is made of the distinction between young adult and adult? I guess it depends who you're talking to. You know, I mostly hang out um, when I'm home with with young adult writers who don't really make that distinction. Um, and, and but certainly, if I read articles on on Slate, they do seem to be making a pretty clear distinction between the kind of complexities that they feel, you know, or viewer may feel that 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 adult yeah. work can tackle versus um, young adult. And I I don't see that difference. You know, there's great and there's terrible young adult stuff and the same is absolutely true of adult fiction is there a sense where the, you know get in trouble is basically however you want want to short it by genre the next batch of stories that you happen to write after the stuff you wrote for pretty monsters because there aren't many stories that have come out since then that haven't been included in this book i don't think there are any actually uh, I... maybe the lady and the fox well, and that I wrote after the set. That, that actually I wrote very late. That, that was written after all but one of the stories in Get in Trouble. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the editor for that anthology, Stephanie Perkins, sent out an invitation uh, with a deadline that was basically three months later. Uh, they, they put that book together very quickly. Mm. Um, so, yes, with, with the exception of that story. And it probably could just as easily fit, you know, fit into Get in Trouble as not. You know, I'm I'm not sure I would have put it in there. I think it has a, a kind of a different tonal quality, not because it's young adult, but because it's a very cheerful story. Do you feel, you, with something like Lady and the Fox, then, that you're beginning to get a feel for what you might be writing next in terms of short mm -hmm. fiction, or is that not so how it works for you? No. Um, in fact, the next thing that I'll work on will probably be in a, a novel, uh, in part because I sold one and I have to <laughs> write it, and also because... Uh, the I, what I will say about all of the stories is that they are getting much longer, um, and I have been told by several people that you know I should probably not see that as a bad thing, just sort of push it as far as I can. So I'm going to try and write a novel. I don't think it will be at all like uh, the 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 fox and the lady story or the lady and the fox. I always forget which one is the story and which one is the um, the David Garner book is Lady into Fox. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, the, in that story, the whole point of writing it was, was the editor, Stephanie Perkins asked people to write, uh, romantic holiday stories with happy endings, which was such a unlikely and charming thing to be asked to do that I said I would do it. Um, but I don't think it's my natural mode. <laughs> I enjoyed doing it, but the next thing I write, I don't think it will have the same tonal quality. 
but then, I mean, you talk about your natural mode, but the natural mode has been sort of changing over the years quite a bit, hasn't it? I mean, you know, if you look back to the kind of stories that that appeared, you know, back in Strange Things, ha- Stranger Things Happen, you know, they're quite different to the kind of stories that appear and get in trouble in the sense that they're, you know, those stories were more structurally experimental in some ways, whereas the stories that appear and get in trouble have much more straightforward narratives by comparison as you say they're longer they're possibly more character focused in a way you know mm. that the i think they're probably definitely true that they're more character focused um i you know it's hard hard to i i think the the ways in which they are experimental maybe is you know from my point of view the point of writing a short story is is always partially the the experiment you know what are the what are the structural things you can do with a story? How can mm. you arrange it in such a way that 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 you're doing something that that feels like a little bit of a challenge or like an interesting problem? Um, so I that still is a big part of why I write. Um, but maybe the maybe the the structural moves are not quite as um, large as mm. as they were. Stranger things happen. Fair enough. Are you surprised that this is also the 20th anniversary of your writing career starting, that it's been that long? Does it feel that it's been that sort of time since you know, your first stories came out all those years ago? Good question. Um, you know, the, 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 I, the stories that I published in Stranger Things Happened, I started writing those stories in 94, 95. Um, so that does seem in one sense, uh, pretty far away. Um, you know, and it did not seem to me that it in fact had been that long since publishing magic for beginners. And I think part of the reason for that is, is I have moved around so much that it's kind of odd to realize that, um, I was writing some of the last stories in magic for beginners after we moved into the house where I live now, and mm-hmm. then I'm still living in this house. It's the mm-hmm. longest I've ever stayed put in one place. And I would say in that sense, it feels it feels very fast. I, I feel like time time uh, feels, since I haven't been moving around, uh, it's, it's harder for me to, to keep track of the passage of time. Fair enough. Stranger things happen seem to, uh, a lot of, well, I mean, again, this is where I, th- I think there's this possessiveness that comes on among those of us in, in this field, we've been seeing those stories for a long time. But if, if I remember mm-hmm. correct, the story came out. The, the collection came out from Small Beer. It was the first Small Beer book, wasn't it? Uh, we published Stranger Things Happen simultaneously with Ray Vuksevich's Meet Me in the Moon Room. Okay, uh, but and my mem- memory could be wrong on this. It was something that we knew about, and then maybe something like a year after the book came out, there was a very favorable New Yorker review. Was it that long a delay? And then, you know, and the, then suddenly, it seems mm. to me that the book was getting an enormous amount of buzz months or even a year after it came out. I, I'm not quite sure of the, the timeline, but I, I can tell you that all of the review attention that um, Stranger Things Happen came about in large part because of Laura Miller, who... Ah reviewed the book for Salon and interviewed me and I think put it into the hands of a lot of people. Um, 
and I think she she in large part is is the reason why I have any kind of uh, you know literary credibility or career was was that review that interview. So reviews can make a difference. I mean, I find that encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> I am selfish. <laughs> I am curious as well. I mean, there have been about 44, 45 stories come out over those 20 years, which in some ways isn't a lot. You're not the fastest of writers at times. I That actually, uh, I've never counted them up. That seems very impressive. <laughs> uh, because I am a very slow writer. I guess it is quite a lot of time passing. Um, you well, know, it's, it's, I, it's still I, twice as productive as Ted Chiang. <laughs> right, I will console myself with that thought. <laughs> or Eileen um, Gunn, for that matter. Uh, Eileen Gunn. You know, um, I did a reading at Elliott Bay, a bookstore in Seattle, and she was in the audience, and after the reading, she put up her hand and she said, when are you going to write a novel? <laughs> 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 I saw somebody tweet afterwards. <laughs> How pleasurable to be in the audience and hear Eileen Gunn ask someone, when are you going to write a novel? <laughs> uh, and you um, have to write, I hope, because... I, I, you know, the, I actually am quite a fast writer once I know how to write the story that I want to write. Um, but I guess what you could say is I don't really know what kind of story I want to write very often. Mm. Well, I guess that actually is the the the, the crux of the question I, I'm trying to get to, rather than suggest that you're I don't know lollygagging around having a real life. Um, mm. What I'm trying to get at is, what is the process for you when it comes to writing a story? Are there a lot of false starts around? I mean, the, the, you know, the, the mythical idea for anyone who reads Ted Chang is that there's six or seven hundred stories he didn't like much sitting in a box, <laughs> and that's why it takes so long. You know. <laughs> No, I've always assumed that that it was fairly similar for 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 me and for Ted, and, and which is by which I mean that um, you know we we aren't people who necessarily sit down and work every day. We don't necessarily uh, you know have a ton of stories that we want to tell. Um, and I should probably stop speaking for him, um, <laughs> but I you know no I. I, I don't have a very regular work schedule. I do meet up pretty regularly with a group of people who do write every single day, uh, you know, pretty much nine to five, although the hours are a little stranger than that. Um, but but no, I, 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 I don't seem to be able to work on a regular basis like that until I have enough pieces of a story, until I have a sense of what it is that I want to do. And that doesn't really seem to happen. Um, I would say that, that I, I, I've had years in which I've written five or six stories that I've liked. And then I've had years where I really didn't have anything that, that seemed to come together. But there, I don't really, I, I have one false start, you know. In that 25-year period or whatever it is, 20-year period, I have uh, one sort of 30,000-word length novella which which is terrible um, <laughs> it wasn't that terrible I, no it is terrible and it's unsalvageable um <laughs> and you know that is the only point in my life where i really kept on working on something even though it seemed to me that um probably it was not worth pursuing i thought well maybe if i keep on working on it i'll figure out what i'm supposed to do with it and it never came to life in any any way 
So hey, that's the sort of thing you put in your in in, 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 in your will that this like <laughs> Kafka, this should never be published ever. <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't even know that it's it's. It, I think it's it's now you know several generations of computers back. It's on uh, a laptop that is, you know, so far in the past that by the time I die, nobody will even be able to remember that that's what a laptop looked like. <laughs> I think I have a copy yeah. somewhere. The year 2045, <laughs> there will be the collected CPM stories of Kelly. <laughs> I, I guess I'm curious as well. Has the gestation process then for a story, full start, full start singular aside, uh, changed much over the 20 years? No. Um, you know, I would say that there are stories, whether because of, of being in a panic or because <laughs> something clicked very early on, I've managed to figure out what it was that I wanted to do pretty quickly, and I've written them in a two days or three days or a week. Um, and then there are stories which have taken over a year to um, make headway on and you know the, I, I will say the story in this book that took the longest is a story I can see I can see right through you which um, I had a I had maybe three pages that I really liked mm -hmm. and that I could not make my way into the main part of the story um, for over a year and finally sort of I, I started keeping um, I started keeping the false starts for that story, actually. Every time that I reworked the characters significantly or changed sort of the events as I was moving forward in the story, I'd save another draft. And I probably have between 10 and 15 of those. And then at a certain point, something clicked enough that I could make sense of the rest of it. And then it was very fast. I wrote the rest of it in about three or four days. Now, the... the that story, if, if I'm remembering correctly, is the one in which a character is referred to as the demon lover. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. Which, which to me, at least, evokes Shirley Jackson, as does the title The Summer People. Um, mm. and, and those of us who are like critics, it's like, here's a plum. Here's something we... There's a Bradbury... A story you wrote for a Bradbury connection, but, uh, but yep. it's fascinating to me that you're... It's, it, that, that some of your relationships, I don't want to say influences, some of your ancestry becomes visible in some of these stories, maybe more than some of the earlier ones. Well, I mean, there's a whole genre of demon lover story, and even more so than the Shirley Jackson story, which I love, I would say the one that kept on coming to mind was the Elizabeth Bowen story about the woman coming oh. back to her house in London. Um... And being driven away at the end in a taxi um, by 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 um, by her dead lover. That's a great story. And then um, oh, right. the, the other story is um, the Joyce Carlet story. Um, where are you going? Where have you been? And again, that's a car story. So I think you can you can see the lineage there pretty pretty plainly. You know the well, yeah. And the and you know the calling. I mean, this is maybe a spoiler, but calling the character, the, 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 the point of view character in that story, the demon lover is a miscue. Well, of course, yeah. Um, um, or, or else maybe it's not. I mean, it depends on what you think his psychological state is and, in fact, what actually transpires in the story. I mean, maybe, maybe it's not a miscue. I think there are two possible readings for that story. 
I think the same thing may be true with the summer people because in some ways the the way you use that that title is almost the inverse of the way Shirley Jackson used the title because um, mm. she's essentially writing a story about people who aren't welcome there after the summer season is ended. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I love, I love, love, love that story. Um, and you know, I, I had it, I knew that I was using the title, but, um, I'm not, I'm not in, I, I didn't, I, I intentionally did not go back and read it until after I had finished writing with summer people. And then I thought I should probably go back and, you know, see see what are the lines connecting it. Um, wow. And I think they, they are much more visible to other people than they are to me in, in that case. Quite a bit has been made in conversation about, or in, in the reviews that I've seen around Getting in Trouble, about you setting stories in and around Florida. And I know you lived in Florida when you were a lot younger. And I'm, I'm curious... Do you find that there's a period of time in your life that it takes for something to circulate through and end up showing up in the background of your fiction? Or is that not something you think you typically happens? Well, I, I think that, you know, I, one of the things I found out when I was um, on tour reading at bookstores is that people like to ask questions about two things. You know, the two questions that came up most often were questions about vampires or questions about Florida, um, which is useful mm. information. Um, I, and I, I see online, you know, people are really excited by the idea of um, Florida in, in, in fiction. Um, and I don't know then if I'm writing about Florida because it's kind of in the zeitgeist or if in fact it's just that I have been not living in Florida for long enough that it, it seems like a, an interesting place to, to draw from. Um, and I, I am sure I'm also influenced by the fact that there has been uh, stuff like the Karen Russell, some of the stories, the novel that have been set in Florida. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. For that matter, the Jeff Vandermeer's trilogy, according to him, is the landscape is simply the landscape you can walk around in northern Florida. Yeah, northern. I will say this: northern Florida is very different from from Miami, where I lived. Um, oh, okay. It's a very, very different kind of landscape, or at least the the kind of the kind of development where I grew up. And in fact, the neighborhood where my father grew up, where we lived for a while before we um, moved into our own house. I'm curious as well. I mean, throughout your writing career, pretty much you've been publishing and editing. Has that influenced, do you feel, how you write much? I think that, you know, editing and, and workshop are probably two sides of the same coin. Um, you know, in, in workshop, you are getting to hear back from a group of people who are usually pretty good readers, different responses that a, a story pulls out of them. Um, and so when you edit work... Um, what you are trying to do is you're trying to anticipate the different responses that, that different kinds of readers will have and, you know, work with the, the, the writer to sort of pull out those questions, tease out the answers, those questions, if they feel like they might be interesting things that open up a book or maybe to shut down potential kinds of readings or thwart readings 
that you feel maybe they're not going to want a reader to to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, hard for me to say what I take away from editing and what I take away from from teaching or in being in workshops and, and talking about how how story works. Um, you know, I. I think that I, I can I can see a lot more clearly the way it works the other way around that because I write um, when I work with other writers I try and work with them in the way that I would like to to be edited. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, one of the things that struck I, I don't I don't know if this is an accident or something you did, but it struck me that the stories uh, that you you got from people in. Um, and monstrous affections. You got some very unusual stories from those particular writers. I mean, the the Paolo Bacigalupi story is not like anything else that Paolo has, has written. Uh, I'm not that familiar with, um, uh, with 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 Holly Black's adult fiction. I guess young adult fiction, I guess. But that struck me as uh, as, as being comic comical science fiction, which I don't associate with her. Was that something that they just popped up with, or is did you sort of say to people, do something out of your comfort zone? No, we didn't. We didn't say that. And in fact, um, you know, the our main experience of having the stories come in was this sort of uh, one: the stories that we got back were fantastic; they were great. But two, yeah. they were mostly really dark. And we thought, well, of course they're dark. We asked for monster stories. It should not be a surprise to us. But it was actually an enormous relief when Holly turned in her story and it was funny. <laughs> this, this is actually, this is something we needed very badly. And in fact, probably should have asked a pup, couple of people, you know, to, to turn in sort of lighter, lighter riffs on this, this theme. Um, and I, I do think that, that that was a, she's actually, she's a very funny writer, um, but science fiction, um, we've she and I have talked a fair amount about. I've certainly whined to her a great deal about how hard it is to figure out what you have to include in a story when you write science fiction. How much world building you have to do, what you have to do in order to establish the kind of science fiction you're writing, the kind of space opera maybe that you're playing with. Um, so it's very. <laughs> Uh, satisfying to have her complain to me <laughs> while she was while she was trying to do that, and in fact, see um, how fast she could, how quickly she could sort of establish the mode of science fiction she was going for, and how quickly she could establish setting. Um, she prefers yep. when she's writing short stories to work in a much shorter um, in a in a smaller space than I do. Um, you know, she she can she can make a story work in sort of under under 5,000 words, which I find very hard right now. Um, so it's always kind of exciting to, to see her during the, the process of that, because I always think, well, maybe I'll figure out how to, how to do it then, too. It is interesting seeing what comes naturally to some people and what doesn't. I mean, after I'd read uh, 10 Rules for an Intergalactic Smuggler, the, collect- the, the successful kind, which is the Holly Black story, uh, I was in contact with her agent, just by chance and said you know she'd written a novel based on her story the cold the coldest girl in cold town and wouldn't it be great if she did a novel based on you know this story from mm. monstrous affections and he said she'd said it was the most difficult thing she'd ever written pretty yes. much yes. it'd been a nightmare to write <laughs> uh yes <laughs> <laughs> definitely I, well i mean i 
maybe she would say something different now, but it did seem to be, I think, because of the particular challenges that science fiction imposes. It was one of the artist stories to figure out. But then, you know, she went off and she read a terrific Doctor Who story. Yeah. So I think that's good good practice for writing a certain kind of space <laughs> opera. It does raise up. It does raise another interesting question with, um, uh, with probably with modern short fiction in general, and that is, um, yeah, how how do you even do humor? Because one of the things that uh, that your stories have been famous for is that they're they're very funny bits. They're they're excellent lines. They're great lines in in this one. Uh, sometimes spoken by very sad characters, so the humor still works. But it seems to be that. Let me put it this way: If I look at, I'm not going to name another collection, but there are, there are other collections of liter, quote unquote literary short stories, um, by which I only partially mean MFA short stories, that are absolutely deadly humorless, and mm. at least at least your characters have a sense of humor. At least they I, get off good lines. <laughs> I um, I have a hard time with with as a reader with work where the the tonal quality is sort of flat where there's and especially if it's kind of a lugubrious quality to the prose um yeah. that that i you know there, there's i think there's something about uh i mean i will say this is this is true for almost everything but but there the kinds of things that people do which are funny or awkward or enormous clues to character um and it's i think it is hard in life to um it's hard to be a person and not even accidentally do things which are entertaining to other people you know not everything is even the most tragic of lives you know has a lot of pratfalls to it um and you know it, it it would there wouldn't be much point in in sort of I would have a very hard time writing a short story in which in which the the tone was unre- unrelentingly grim. I don't actually mind grim. I just there needs to be some other stuff in it as well. Well, I'm I'm thinking of a story like um oh, 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 um Secret Identity. On the on the surface, that is a very sad story. That looks like it's going to be a heartbreaking story from the beginning and and, and and it's not really partly because, as you mentioned, the tone of, of of this girl's voice is, I think, the tone of a survivor. It's it's, it's somebody who's yeah. who's kind of made a mistake and she knows it, and she she goes with, um, she she's able to go with the superheroes. She's able to go with the dentist. She she sort of deals with life as it comes at her, with an attitude that prevents the story from being. Um, a very familiar tale of uh, you know uh, of a misguided romance or of, of somebody being uh, badly misled. That, that 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 sort of teeters on the edge of tragedy throughout the story. Well, I mean, you, I mean, it, it would be possible to tell that story in other ways, but part of me thinks you know here is somebody who is having a miserable high school experience, whose family life is pretty dire at the moment and things are not going to be improving and for the first time in her life she's somewhere else that somewhere else is New York City she is surrounded mm-hmm. by people who are really interesting people even if they're not necessarily good people and so there's got to be there's got to be some some fun there um, even um, 
even though stuff is not really going the way that, that she would have hoped for in sort of best case scenario. And the other thing is all this story, you know, I really feel with the adolescent protagonists that the point where I'm writing about them in the story may not be the high point of their life, but they are teenagers and they will, I hope, grow up and their lives will be very different from the way that I am, from from the kind of setting or the, the circumstances that I'm describing them in currently. You know, they are going to, they're going to have other chances. Mm-hmm. You know, not every teenager gets a second chance, but I imagine a lot of these these kids do. And that guess, is not necessarily the case with the, the, the older characters. I think you are very close to fucking it up for the last time. Right. Um, I, I guess one other thing I should say about that story, which I, I, I found it familiar, not because I'd ever been a teenage girl on a bus to New York to, you know, but... There was a sense throughout the story of that I've met this kid, and I've met this kid at science fiction conventions. And, and for some of these kids, getting up their nerve to go to a first regional science fiction convention or a con or something, they're going to meet characters who to them are like superheroes. And they're going to meet characters who to them are incomprehensible like dentists. And, and they're going to meet strange uh, people who... Maybe, maybe they don't carve butter statues, but there are people who make costumes. And... So there was a sense that that was a story was that there was there was a great affection toward the whole notion of of being a fan of something of being you know in a hotel with people that uh, that were going to show new worlds to you that you didn't even suspect were going to be there. I you know I, I'd say half of me really likes that reading. I I I think that you're absolutely right that this is that story is in, is in many ways a a love letter to the experience of. Um, you know, going to a, a convention and, and how exciting it is to go to a convention where people are dressed up in costumes and maybe there are simultaneous conventions going on. And the only reason that I find that reading a little bit disturbing is because it's about a teenager going to meet somebody that they have a crush on, you know, that they, they want to make a relationship with. And then if I put that into sort of science fiction con context, right. I'm really really disturbed. The, the, <laughs> the flaw of the reading is her motivation for going to that hotel is not the convention. And, yeah. And <laughs> but it still, it felt like, it, it felt almost like conventions I've been at. Yes. I, I, well, I, it was very easy to picture the, the sort of mood of the convention and, and you know, the, the feel of it and the, that kind of liveliness and, and that kind of joy almost. Yeah, all these, all these, all these people there, and I'm, I, I don't know. I, if you are a reader of that story and you've never been to a science fiction convention or, in fact, any kind of convention, um, you know, do you do does that does does that reader um, have the same experience of the story? Probably not. Um, we'll have to track one down and ask them. That's the, that gets us back to the number of, of different kinds of readers coming to your fiction from a lot of different angles, um, and do you get I mean, I, I've not seen all the reviews, but it 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 it, it strikes me of the few that I've seen that some of the mainstream reviews you get, uh, some of the literary, and and by mainstream that's kind of a catch-all term also because mainstream yes. can be everything from, uh, from you know aging professors like myself to the new Brooklyn literati <laughs> uh, to uh, people who run MFA programs, but 
is 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 there a, almost a sense of coding when there are genre people that are seeing things like this that other people don't see, and maybe things that they see that genre readers uh, will overlook? You know, I of all the 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 reading experience that I am least able to anticipate or parse is the experience of somebody who has not let, read a lot of genre. That's uh -huh. I, I you know I I can't quite figure out how how some if if in fact you're somebody who's not read a lot of genre I don't know how to anticipate the ways in which you'll read the stories other readings I can sort of figure out the ones that are most likely um, and so that's you know that's a little tricky for me um, you know I what I what I can what I can figure out though is even people who have not read in genre have have enough of a um, sense of fairy tales from Disney movies, science fiction from movies, um, vampire stuff from, from Twilight or from movies that, that I can sort of, I can, I can sort of attempt to set up a story anticipating that at least most readers coming from the mainstream will have those cues, which gives me something to work with. Um, but I, you know, the, and then it becomes a question in the, in the putting together the collection, you know, which story do you put in first in order to oh. ease a mainstream story, a mainstream reader into the collection as a whole. And I know that um, Secret Identity, for example, is, is difficult um, because mm -hmm. if you're a mainstream reader, at first maybe you're not quite sure if, if they, those are superheroes or people in costumes. Um, and in fact, when I do readings, I can sort of, you know, track kind of an audience pause in certain places um, where they're trying to figure out how to interpret something that I've, I've just read. There's a line in The New Boyfriend that um, I like and I kept, uh, and I'm aware that it trips some people up, um, at least when I'm doing readings. And it's one of the, they're talking about names for the the new boyfriend and one of the characters says you know it needs to be an old-fashioned name and one of the other girls says because nowadays nobody ever dies and she's saying it as a joke but there is sort of a moment when I can hear the audience thinking well does she mean this is a world in which people don't die or is that sarcastic mm -hmm. so I'm never quite sure that that was a, a great line of dialogue to keep in the story I just kept it because I liked it that's why it's a great line to have in the story. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I've, I've talked to writers and um, actually probably more, more science fiction and fantasy writers who've had the experience of, of reading, not necessarily at a public reading, but, a, but to a college class or a high school class in which the teacher would insist that everything in the story is metaphorical. And then the, the poor author is left with saying, no, no, this really is on Mars. This really is a zombie. This really, it's, it's, it's not a metaphor. It's, it's a vampire. Um, and there, I, maybe I, I do think, Go ahead. yeah, that is my least favorite kind of reading in which you have to impose the, the metaphor. I mean, I know that you're going to do it anyway, but it so undercuts the, the liveliness of what's going on in a story when you begin to try and find the one uniting metaphor that sort of underpins everything in the story. That's a terrible, terrible way to read. It's no fun. I mean, I guess it's fun if you think that the whole point of a reading is to figure out the, you know, the message. Um, yeah. But I really try as hard as I can to 
make the metaphorical reading as shaky or as individual as possible to a particular reader. Well, I mean, I think that a lot of people were, were trained that way, and I think the short story, when we get back to this distinction between um, young adult or adult fiction, or between short fiction and novels, the short story is problematical because people tend to study those things in college. Uh, they tend mm -hmm. to study a model of the short story, which is, well, I guess, I guess the Raymond Carver model is fortunately a little bit gone away now, but, but there's an environment out there, even among what we consider, let's say, New Yorker type stories, that seems to be more amenable to what you're doing than it might have been when your career began. I mean, we've had, uh, you mentioned Karen Russell, and we've had George Saunders, and going back before that, I can, I'm old enough to remember when the New Yorker rediscovered fantasy in the form of Donald Barthelme. Um, mm. so, so there has been this sense of liberation in the short story form um, that's not just related to genre stories, it's, it's, uh, it's been all over the map for the last 20 years or so. Yeah, I, I'm curious, do you think that, where do you think it happened first? Do you think it happened first in novels or in, sh in short stories? I'm sensing that, well, this is just a complete guess now that you're, now that you're asking hard questions mm. yourself. Um, I think that in the 60s, there was a lot of experimentation going on in novels with, uh, with people from John Barth to Kurt Vonnegut, yep. obviously. Uh, and, and that didn't make its way into the literary short story because the markets weren't ready for it. The markets back then were the Atlantic and Harper's and the New Yorker. And uh, as, as long as the New Yorker was, uh, was basically, for, for before Raymond Carver came along, the New Yorker was following the, 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 the template of, of Salinger and specifically the template of A Perfect Day for Banana Fish. They wanted every story to be utterly real and have a devastating revelation at the end, even though there's not actually any plot anywhere in between. I think mm. in the 60s, readers were trained to read more fantastic uh, fiction and more liberated fiction uh, because of novels. And my guess, uh, without having any supporting evidence at all, is that that worked its way back into the short story probably in the 70s and 80s, and much more so, I think, in the last 20 years. Uh, well, I mean, and that sounds like it goes along with some of the changes in science fiction and fantasy in the 60s and in the 70s. That maybe oh, that was yeah. something on both sides. Does that also um, coincide with the change in the basic high school English curricula as well, where you see more fantastic work creeping its way into what you're going to account, you know, what e almost any teenager is going to encounter growing up as well? I did not get, I was not given a lot of work which was fantasy or science fiction or even surreal um, in high school. Uh, in junior high at my Christian academy, we were, um, we had an English teacher who gave us um, The Once and Future King. Mm -hmm. We all read that. And that was, that was for me a reread, but it was great. And then I think probably the only other weird thing that we read was probably The Lottery. Yeah. See, we encountered mm -hmm. uh, Ray Bradbury going through high school. Uh, certainly uh, The Hobbit we did in high school. Mm -hmm. uh, we did The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe at some point along the way in, towards the end of primary school. No, so we didn't have any of that. So there was a, an element of broader reading of the fantastic. I mean, you talk about the way it, you know, the fantastic has moved into short fiction uh, and it, the, you know, what happened in the 60s. But I mean, when I was going to school in the early 70s, not only was I pr personally reading a lot of genre fiction, but I encountered some 
in my schooling and then fantastic imagery and fantastic stories became much more prevalent in the mass media as well mm. you know certainly through the 70s and through the 80s you saw a lot more of what we would recognize as being genre science fiction of fantasy in those sort of areas than you had beforehand and i would have thought that might have had some impact what I think mm. you, what I think is interesting today is that I'm not sure that I'm convinced that novels are as open to that kind of experimentation as they once were, whereas places like Tin House and Conjunctions seem quite open to it. In, you know, here in you know 2015. You know, I I'm probably at a point now where I get sent a lot of work, which is on that sort of intersection between fantasy and, and and mainstream work so I see a lot of you know galleys of literary novels that are also ghost stories or mm -hmm. have vampires in them or you know have have genre elements well, so it's yeah, harder well, for me yeah. to have a to get a sense of um, you know if there's more or less it just seems to me that it, it seemed they seem to have much prettier um, covers they're being treated <laughs> yeah. in a much more serious way <laughs> I, I, you started to say something though about how, uh, I, how maybe the the genre readership has become more open to literary experimentation at the same time that the the sort of quote unquote literary audience has become more um, amenable to genre, and I think that's true as well. I think, uh, and I think that works to your benefit, and it certainly works to the benefit of of, of, of Mary Rickert and Ted Chang and and, uh, and 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 Eileen Gunn, all kinds of people, because. Yes. When, when you go back far enough, uh, I was just reading uh, somebody's essay about um, Pamela Zoline's Heat Death of the Universe from, I think, mm. 1965, which was such an anomaly at the time and which outraged mm. a lot of American readers because it's not really science fiction. It's the second law of thermodynamics is just dumped into the story in quotations. And that story, um, which I've not reread in a couple of years, would fit right in today. At the time, it seemed weird. And the outliers in the history of science fiction mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s, there are a Lafferty's, uh, some of Joanna Russ's short fiction, seems to me yes. uh, ahead of their time now. They'd put right in. Well, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I'm imagining that, that at least inside genre, that there are people working now who read Le Guin and Joanna Russ and Tiptree and Delaney um, and just mm -hmm. thought that that was what, you know, that that was fine and okay to do when I think at the time you know, some of the stuff that people were doing was, was, was outrageous, you know, harder, harder when you're finding it in the, the eighties and the nineties the to judge that it was, um, that it was outside of the norm. Instead, you just think, well, this is, this is the kind of thing that one can do in genre. And it mm -hmm. definitely seemed that way to me that the, the voices in genre were so distinct and the, the, the modes were so exciting. You know, you had people like Bradbury, you had Le Guin, um, you know, you had all the, I think, were they Delray paperbacks, Pat Murphy and things like that. There were all these different, very distinct uh, voices. And you thought, well, fine, you know, this is, look at all these awesome things in paperback, um, all of which are being shelved in science fiction and fantasy. This is clearly where I want to be. So that's what you were reading when you were growing up. I was reading that, and I was reading a lot of, a lot of, a lot of horror, a lot of ghost stories. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and a lot of young adult. And young adult has always had a, a, a pretty big section of young adult has always been fantasy. 
and, and, and again, that could be because uh, a lot of, um, because it was a way to publish. Uh, it was a way to keep things in print. It was a way to keep Lloyd Alexander in print, I suppose. Um, sure, and I'm, I'm guessing, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say The Once and Future King, because it's funny, I was talking to Mary Rickert, and we both read that when we were like in junior high. It was never, a, it was not a young adult thing to begin with, but it seems to be one now. You know, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know when or how people sort of come when when you come across the Lonesome Future King now. Um, you know, we were actually looking at a bookstore for um, not quite early readers, but more sort of early middle grade um, editions of, of King Arthur stories. Um, because Ursula really actually, she just read a, some Michael Morpuko version of Beowulf, which cool. she just read and really liked. And we were thinking, well, this is probably the right time to, to start reading some King Arthur stories. I, if it were two years down the line, I would think, well, just Mort Arthur would be fine, but it's not quite ready for that yet. No. But there are there are some editions, and there's Jane Yolen's Young Merlin book, so I think we're right. I think we're set. Um, I, I I just had another theory on the spur of the moment. I think that maybe the sort of reassessment of, of the Once and Future King had to do whenever Disney came out with that movie, the the animated movie of the Sword in the Stone, because at that point there was a paperback version of the first volume of the Once and Future King that was clearly published as a children's book. Yes, and it, and maybe after that they figured, okay, well, we'll just sort of drag the rest in after it, and and then these kids will get to be fourteen, and then they'll go see Camelot, and and, and then then we're safe. Oh, you're you're describing my my childhood. <laughs> uh, although I, I I think I probably saw Camelot before I I read the Once and Future King because my parents had that on. I don't know. They wouldn't have had it on. I I don't know how I saw it, but I know I saw it and I loved it. And then we had the soundtrack. In fact, I probably heard the soundtrack before I saw the, the movie. Really. And then saw the play, and then and then maybe read the read the book and loved it. But I did read the I did read the um, the mass market paperback with the cover from the Disney movie um, before I read the the full book. Mm. Because one of the things that stuck with me from that, um, not to dwell on the Once and Future King, but I'd read the book before the. I'm old, before the Disney movie even came out. And, and I did see Camelot, and there's, a, there's very little in the soundtrack album. There's a little bit in the play, uh, but it's absolutely heartbreaking in the novel when basically the dying King Arthur is telling the young page to go out and tell the story. Mm. And it, it struck me that that's, that, that that's a kind of meditation on the whole beginning of the Arthurian romance, right there. That somebody has to go tell the story, and it it really struck with it, it stuck with me much more so than than things from C.S. Lewis or even Tolkien did at that time. Yeah, I really, I really, really love that. I love that book, and it is. I mean, it's kind of a one of kind book because he put in so many things that he was interested in, you know, which mm -hmm. you would not expect to find in a in an Arthurian retelling. All the all the stuff about um, all, all the all the sort of naturalist, you know, the the sort of descriptions of nature and animals. King Arthur turning yeah. into all the different animals, and that is something that that only he would have put into that story. Yeah, Arthurian stories really seem to be something that just don't go away. 
No, and I was. I mean, are there any? Who is who is doing them now? You know, is. Well, I mean, right now, because of oddities in the way the world turns, first of all, my, in fact, both of my daughters have become obsessed with Merlin, the TV show. Ah, uh, right. Which I cannot explain, but that's all right. <laughs> and I, and, and I, come, I come across in amongst you know, sort of every year, there's a handful of stories around. I haven't seen anything significant at novel length in a while, but it tends to cycle through. I mean, the last period I really associate with having strong Arthurian work, I don't know, probably back... In the eighties, I suppose, mm. you know, around the time when uh, Marion Bradley did the Miss of Avalon and whatever else. Sure, which were huge. Yeah, I guess those are the last big ones. There was the young adult series that Sharon November published, um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Ween, right? Mm. Sort of an Arthurian retellings, which are which are which are great, and I think that's the last sort of retelling of those that, that I remember coming across. And then there's what I think is the great Lost Arthurian series, which is the one that Tim Powers was going to do. I, you know, based around uh, Drawing of the Dark. Uh, boy, would I love to read that. <laughs> Let me ask you, I'm curious as well, um, I mean, slowly we're going to sort of run out of time, but how do you choose, whether it be for short fiction or as an editor, the next thing you're going to do? I mean, I know you're, you said already you're contracted to, to do a novel and that's what, obviously what you'll do next. But when you're not actually committed, what is it that brings you to choose monstrous affections or steampunk or it's time to write a young adult story like this or that? Jonathan, it's it, it's breaking up some. I, oh, sorry. I think I may have lost you entirely. Okay, what I was basically saying was, how do you choose what you're going to do next? I mean, I a know project. that you're contracted to do a new novel, and that's what you'll do next. But contracts aside, you know, what attracts you to a monstrous affections or a steampunk or the next books you're going to publish for Small Beer or the next story you're going to write? Um. Well, a lot of the time, um. You know, it will be for for a long time. It was that someone like Ellen Datlow would ask me as for a story for an anthology, um, and you know, the idea would 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 strike me for whatever reason. I think, well, I could do something with that. Um, you know, so sometimes it was an editor asking on a particular theme, um, and the way it usually works is is I will write something toward a particular theme for a particular person. Um, or a, a magazine that's asked me for something. Um, and then the next time I sit down, I, I usually think, well, I'd like to write a ghost story. So I would say the, you know, what I, what I usually end up sort of putting a story around is just, well, what's a kind of ghost story that I haven't told before? Or what is a, what's a new way to organize a, a, a ghost story what, what would be something that wouldn't be quite like something I've done before but would still be a ghost story mm -hmm. what brings you back to ghost stories again and again I you know I, I just think it probably is my favorite kind of story that, that um, you know given a, a pile of books the one that I will go for first is a ghost story collection or a ghost story anthology because you're attracted to the idea of dead people hanging around I cannot tell you why, you know, I, I think it's, um, you know, I, I, I will go back to a question that I asked a bunch of people for a while until I got an answer that I liked. And um, my question was, why is it that it is so pleasurable to reread ghost stories that you know pretty well? Um, you know, why, why do we like going back to 
M.R. James stories when, in fact, we've read them before. Or Lovecraft, if, if you feel in the mood for Lovecraft. Why is it that we reread these stories again? And Because it's not that they are necessarily scary. You know, we already know what's going to happen. Yeah. And um, Nick Moetis actually, he said, well, we read them to feel a sense of dread. Um, which seemed true to me. And I really haven't interrogated it much beyond that. He just gave me that answer, and I thought, this feels right, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I I think there's, there's something about, um, you know, either reading to experience a feeling of dread or else writing in order to evoke a sense of, of dread. And I, I might broaden it to say just strangeness. Okay. That, you know, that, that there's something about a ghost story which um, is destabilizing in a, in a pleasurable way that it is a ghost story is always about you know living people but there's always a piece of the story which um, you know is, is sort of which sort of looms and it just seems like it just seems to be the mechanism that, that I'm able to build stories around I think because I read so many of them when I was a kid. I like the term destabilization because that, that kind of rang a bell when, when you said it. I've, I've been talking to Peter Straub who's in the process of putting together his selected stories and finding, mm -hmm. guess what, there are a lot of ghost stories there apart from the famous <laughs> one called Ghost Story. And, I, I, and it, it didn't, go ahead. No, I just, I love his stories so much. I love his novels but I love his short stories. Yeah, and a lot of people don't know much about them, but the one that came to mind, um, which has haunted me, and I don't, I'm trying to talk him into putting it in this collection. I don't think it's there yet. I mean, it's, he's not finished, but there's a story called Hunger and Introduction, which is about a really awful character who dies and becomes a ghost. Yes. And there's a scene at the end of the story uh, with a sort of grubby little girl sitting in front of television getting herself filthy, eating snacks, and pulling snot out of her nose, and this sort of yes. thing. And the ghost just can't w stop watching this. They're, they are just hypnotized. They're riveted by this little girl. And I thought, that's what being dead's like. It's really interesting, because <laughs> we're being watched. <laughs> I, I love that story. I love that story. And there is a story in Magic for Beginners, which, you know, it's pretty much a response to the call of that story. You know, I would really? say that, that I would not have written The Great Divorce if I had not read Hunger. Ah. So, just before we wind up, because we're almost at the end of our hour, with Get In Trouble Out In The World, and you're going off to write a novel now, what else is coming out that you're involved with that readers should be aware of in the coming months? I don't think that there is anything that I'm involved in, actually. I, you know, I sort of have this burst of writing. I wrote um, a lot in the last sort of year and a half. And then, you know, I sort of turned in all of the the mm. last stories for Get in Trouble, the, the two that had not been mm. published. And um, I wrote the story for Stephanie Perkins. And then I really thought, I don't want to write anymore for a while. And yet yeah, you want to write I, a novel. I, I have to write a novel. And maybe yeah, that is actually where the feeling of not wanting to write comes from. <laughs> mostly I thought I just don't want to write any more short stories for, for quite some time. <laughs> but you are publishing I, 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 a handful of books and whatever through Small Beer. 
Absolutely. So for small beer, small beer, um, I just um, finished rereading or reading the the last, the final draft of um, the follow-up to Sophia Samatar's novel, A Stranger in Alondria, which is, of course, astonishing. Um, (laughs) We are publishing a a young adult novel, Archivist, Archivist Wasp, by Nicole Corner Stace. Um, we're working on a M record collection, um, kind of a selected Jonakin collection uh, that will come out next year, and starting to go through um, Le Guin essays um, so that we can do a, a selected essays. So, well, well, you're saying that uh, the Aiken book will be next year, but will most of those be in 2015? Uh a couple of them will be in 2015 and then some will be more. I, Sophia's book will come out in uh, spring of 2016. Okay. Well, since, since we are almost at the end, maybe one conversation we might have, because I, I believe that uh, the Mary Rickert collection is due out in, uh, in time for world fantasy. Is that right? Yes. Well, maybe, I, yes. well, maybe the four of us could sit down at world fantasy and talk about that book then. That would be fantastic. That'd be- but until then, Get In Trouble is in stores now and is a wonderful book. I mean, I feel like looking at the stories that I've had a relationship with this book for nearly a decade now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a very happy relationship. And I'm delighted to see that. And I really want to thank you for making time to talk to us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Okay, it's fun. And with that, I think we're done. But thank you very, very much. And Gary, yeah, well, and I, Jonathan, talk again and kelly will see you you won't be at the nebulas i suppose no where are they this year they're in chicago and i just Mm -hmm. thought of that because mary rickard's coming down for it Um, right well convenient for you very easy for me absolutely (laughs) we'll see you at a convention soon yes Uh, well i'll see you i'll see you at reader con reader con absolutely and i'll see at world fantasy and maybe someday you'll be back in australia i will be we're going to be in um we're going to be in brisbane um in the fall Always Brisbane. I know. Well, they, they, they're they the ones who fly us out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs>